Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipper. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org, on Facebook and Twitter, and on our YouTube channel. My name is Barry Eisler. I write thrillers uh, that are informed by my previous career as a technology lawyer and CIA intelligence officer, and I will be your moderator tonight. Our guest is writer and editor David Talbot. As founder of Salon.com, David was one of the pioneers in online journalism. I'm really excited to be the moderator tonight because I am a big fan of Salon, a big fan of David's. I loved Season of the Witch. If you haven't read it, it's a terrific history of San Francisco. I highly recommend it. Some people have read this book. Yeah, it's great. My daughter recommended it to me. She's a junior at Soda, and she's like, you gotta read this book, we're reading it in class. And she was right, it's just fantastic. And then by a happy coincidence, I got invited to interview David about his latest book, The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, The CIA, and the Rise of America's Secret Government. Okay, we're rolling. David, welcome, thank you for being here tonight. So our format is, um, is pretty wide open. I've got some questions, and I'm really looking forward to hearing David's thoughts and response. We'll also be taking uh, questions from the audience. So, um, so I think this should be a super interesting discussion for anyone who's interested in the topic, which I think is probably most of the people who are in here, or you've come to the wrong place. Okay. Um, what I wanted to ask right up front, David, is this. Uh, so I'm reading the book, and what's so amazing about it is it doesn't really feel like history to me. I mean, it is, obviously. It's about events that happened uh, a half century ago, and some of them even longer. But this notion of the rise of America's secret government is so tragically timely. Um, I would love to hear you uh, talk a little bit more about, about the kind of secret government, what we call the deep state, when we're talking about other countries, not America. We don't have a deep state in America. <laughs> Only Turkey has that. I would love to hear about um, your, your views on what might be characterized as the deep state in America today and how this got started during the reign at the CIA of Alan Dulles. To me, that brought home, uh, for us, for me, how this was still obviously a major issue before the American people. You know, torture, extraordinary rendition, CIA black sites, massive surveillance of citizens, as Ed Snowden uh, you know, dramatically brought forth for us, uh, assassinations by drones. Uh, the technology might have changed a bit, but all of these uh, practices that have, we've been wrestling with as a nation and our conscience began not after 9-11, but after, uh, during the Cold War under Alan Dulles. Um, I think he could only dream of some of the technology, of course, that we have today. He would have liked uh, to use that, I'm sure. But I, but I felt this dark history had to be brought forth. Um, you know, 
my researcher, uh, my research colleague, Karen Croft, is here tonight. And Karen and I went to visit Alan Dulles' daughter at some point in Santa Fe. And that, to me, was an emotional turning point in uh, our research process. Joan Talley, as she's known, her married name, is an amazing woman. And I began, if you've started to read the book, in the prologue with her story. She was uh, one of the three children of Alan Dulles. Uh, she, I think, was traumatized by that experience. And like many of us, as she nears the age of 90 at the time, she was there in Santa Fe, retired Jungian therapist, driving an Obama, uh, you know, a Prius with an Obama sticker on it. I'm sure her father is rolling in his grave. But she, like us, is trying to wrestle with this dark history in a, in a kind of a therapeutic way almost, in find, trying to figure out what had happened to her family, what had happened to us as a nation. And I think America hasn't gone through that process sufficiently, um, certainly not as much as Joan Dulles has personally, but what has been done in our name as a democracy? What has been done uh, in our name as a country? Uh, we barely know our own history. The CIA, of course, withholds a lot of that history from us when you try to examine uh, this espionage history. Uh, it's the very nature of power to be secretive. And of course, it's the very nature of uh, intelligence uh, agencies to be secretive. But that uh, puts even more of a burden on us as a citizenry, as me, on me as a journalist and historian, to, as she said, look at the dark as well as the light, in, in Jungian terms or in political terms. And only when we really fully, I think, look at this history, you know, in, its, uh, you know, in all of its manifestations and its shadows, I think can we go forward and grow up, frankly, as a nation. Um, this notion that <clears throat> governments are inherently most instinctively secretive is almost a, a theme in the book. Why do you think that is? Why do people... Because, I mean, most of us are probably not nefariously secretive in most of the things we do, but then we enter the government and something happens to us. Why is that, do you think? Well, <laughs> because I think power uh, is more interested in its own interest rather than the interest of the people. And yet there's a, of course... Um, uh, a charade, can we say, a democracy in a way, that we're all in control of our political fates, but that's not the case. We have these rituals of elections every four years or two years, and we feel that we have some say in uh, what's, what's happening in our country. And yet, in my case, and many of yours, uh, I'm 64 years old, we've been, uh, despite what we have been clamoring about in the streets and what we demand, we are in a state of permanent war. We have a, a surveillance state that's more powerful than ever, that abrogates our civil liberties more than ever. Uh, and yet, so it seems like there's this terrible disconnect between what the popular will is and what happens behind closed doors. And I think that's because of men like Alan Dulles. So what I wanted to do, bringing it back to you, Barry, was to tell a great spy story. Please. Uh, and to tell it a nonfiction spy story, huh? because I think nonfiction sometimes is more mind-blowing than, uh, than uh, fiction. Agreed. Sad <laughs> but true. And I felt I had a great character in Alan Dulles, and I had some insights into him through uh, his daughter, who is this therapist, and through this amazing treasure trove of his wife's diaries and correspondence, his mistress's uh, diaries and correspondence, and by the way, they became close friends, Clover Dulles and Mary Bancroft. They referred to him as the shark, this man who dominated both their lives. 
but there's an important, you know, that's not just for the dish factor. It, I think it's important to understand him as a personality because I think uh, he's representative of many people who have formed our so-called uh, secret government or deep state. These are men who have a ruthless sense of power. Uh, they equate, they think democracy is too important to be left in the hands of uh, you, you and me <laughs> or our elected representatives. Um, and they form a tight circle. They often send their children to the same schools. They socialize together. They belong to the same clubs. It's what C. Wright Mills, the great sociologist in the 1950s, uh, called the power elite. And now, of course, this terminology has changed a little bit. Peter Dale Scott and others who've developed this term, the deep state. And this is the, basically the permanent government, the people who continue to be in power positions, no matter who happens to be elected president. Forgive me if I'm skipping around, but there's sure. so much to unpack in, in this story. So um, what you just said puts me in mind of the Bay of Pigs and how Dulles and the CIA apparently manipulated Kennedy, I don't want to tell too much, but, but manipulated Kennedy into what Kennedy reluctantly thought would be a kind of um, uh, halfway in kind of thing. And the CIA knew that once they could get him halfway in, that, uh, that he would have no choice but to finish the job, and he didn't. How, how common do you think that sort of thing is? I mean, you think of here as Dulles and the CIA as the deep state, an elected president who doesn't really want to launch this, um, this group into this, not, in, not invasion, but the Bay of Pigs um, mm -hmm. uh, was a little small maybe to be called an invasion compared to what Dulles really wanted, but this group into uh, Cuba, and, uh, and even though Kennedy didn't really want to do it, he kind of got shanghai into it. How common do you think that sort of thing is? Well, I think John F. Kennedy is actually, I know we see him as this glamorous figure and people are obsessed with the Kennedy aura, but he's actually much more interesting than we even know. Mm. Um, he's in a very intelligent guy uh, who comes into power because of his family name, in, in part, of course, and the family money. But he's actually a deep soul, and he's an old soul. And he's a, he's a, a person who's grown up sick most of his life, sickly. He's been in, his favorite thing is to read books. You know, on the eve of his running for president, he tells friends around the dinner table at his home in Georgetown, you know, I'm the kind of guy who would rather read a book than talk to the guy next to me on an airplane. You know, he's an introvert. He's a, he's a really uh, interesting personality. And so I've leavened this book, this very dark book about power, with people who I feel are heroic. And, and JFK is clearly one of them. He's not perfect. He's a flawed hero himself. He made mistakes. But I think the clash between JFK and Dulles is really the climax of the book. It's the last third of the book. But here you have writ large, the symbol of American democracy, a guy who truly believed that power had to be dispersed to the American people, that these uh, entrenched forces of national security that were keeping us uh, locked into this nuclear brinksmanship, which he was very concerned about, the possibility of a nuclear war, that they had to be directly confronted. And the Bay of Pigs is the first schism, mm. the fracture that happens between the Kennedy White House and these hardliners in the national security wing of his government. And you're right, Alan Dulles, uh, I believed, and the CIA, he inherited the operation, of course, Kennedy from Eisenhower. They believed that Kennedy was young, was, could be manipulated. Uh, the, the, when you read the CIA internal history of that disastrous operation, the Bay of Pigs, you see that it must have been intended to fail because Alan Dulles stocks it 
with not the A-level people or even the B-level people within the agency, but as the CIA's own internal report says, with the C-level people. It was a motley crew of Cuban exiles, 1,100 men, who landed on the beach, and the people who were the masterminds of it, the CIA people, were the C-level types. So I believe, and this is, uh, there's much evidence to back this up, that the point was to you know, let this operation start to bog down on the beaches, and then there would be such intense pressure on Kennedy from the Pentagon, the CIA, not to let this thing fail and right. become a humiliation right. for the United States, that he would be forced, as this young president, to send in the full power of the U.S. military. Well, Kennedy stuns these people like Dulles and the gray-haired generals at the Pentagon, by saying, no, I told you all along, I wanted this to be a quiet operation. He wasn't really into it at all in the beginning. And he refuses to expand it into an all-out international crisis. And they're furious. The rage is enormous. They think he's weak, that he's a coward, they being the, the generals and the CIA people. And so this is the first break within the uh, Kennedy government. And afterwards, Kennedy says, He's so furious himself at the CIA that he wants to shatter it into a thousand pieces, that famous quote, and scatter it to the winds. And he does indeed assign Arthur Schlesinger, who uh, has some intelligence background going back to World War II, the historian who serves in the Kennedy White House, he assigns him the task of basically dismantling the CIA and, and totally uh, changing the name even, Schlesinger uh, suggests, because the brand has been so contaminated to them. And they want to get rid of Dulles, which they do. They want to get rid of Dulles' top depu deputies, which they do, the two top deputies. But he doesn't go all the way with these reforms, JFK. There's major pushback, and he can only do so much. But this, I think, is one of the great dramas of our day, and still the American people aren't fully aware of it, that there was an internal war within the Kennedy presidency. And it had major tragic uh, ramifications for the country as a whole, as we can talk about later. But it does begin at the Bay of Pigs, and I think American people have to be fully cognizant of that. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. 
Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. Okay, um, what about Mongoose? I mean, because on the one hand, Kennedy did seem to uh, launch the bad pigs reluctantly, and then he stood up to the generals in the CIA and said, okay, you know, this was, this was a disaster, and it was a bad idea, and we're not going to make it even worse. But then he tasked his brother with uh, Operation Mongoose, which was really a terror and assassination campaign that America ran in Cuba all the way, at least up through the Cuban Missile Crisis, if it didn't go on beyond that. So what, like, what, what goes on in the mind of someone like Kennedy, where he seems like he has such good sense in one area, but then he decides to launch this terror campaign on the other? Well, I, I would uh, disagree with you on the way you characterize Please. Mongoose. Mongoose was basically a sabotage campaign. Uh, raids on Cuba, uh, you know, set fire to sugar mills, disrupt the economy, uh, do everything you can to keep Castro on the defensive. It was not an assassination program, and it often gets conflated with the CIA assassination program that was underway from the Eisenhower period on. So I don't believe there's any uh, evidence that indicates the Kennedys approved the CIA's assassination operation. In fact, when Bobby Kennedy, as attorney general, is finally told about this, mm by the general counsel from the CIA, he's furious. Because Bobby Kennedy, of all people, you know, was known as enemy number one of the mafia. He had made his career uh, as the chief counsel for the Senate Rackets Committee hunting down the mafia. So when the CIA comes and tells him sheepishly in May of 62, oh, um, we gotta tell you something, Bobby, uh, we're you know, working with the mafia to kill Castro, he flips out. Uh, so I don't believe there's any evidence. I mean, there's some, enemies of the Kennedy and certain historians who've tried to say that the Kennedy signed off on this. I don't believe that. Um, the CIA's alliance with the mafia was a dark alliance. Mm. Um, and it continued, by the way, after they told him in May 62, oh, don't worry, we've shut this down. At that very moment, William Harvey, who's the CIA official in charge of the CIA mafia uh, hit uh, Operation to Kill Castro, is giving poison pills to his uh, mafia emissaries uh, to kill Castro. So there was complete contempt within these uh, security circles uh, for the president. I mean, it began before uh, the Bay of Pigs even. I want to tell a quick story and then we can move on. You know, Patrice Lumumba, how many people here know that name? Certain age? That's good. Well, Patrice Lumumba, for those of you who don't know who that was, was a young, charismatic uh, leader, nationalist, who came to power in the Congo, was democratically elected as this brutal colonial rule uh, that uh, Joseph Conrad, among others, uh, dramatized in The Heart of Darkness. And Adam Hochschild uh, did a great book on King Leopold's ghost. One of the most brutal colonial regimes was the Belgian regime in the Congo. Finally, this heavy yoke is being lifted 
at the end of the 1950s, and this bright young leader comes forward who's elected president. Well, he immediately begins to uh, threaten uh, the very powerful mining interests, Western mining interests. Uh, it's a mineral-rich country, the Congo. Uh, the powers in London and New York and, and, and so on, and Belgium. And uh, the CIA, uh, during the Eisenhower, is uh, mobilized. And Alan Dulles greenlights, with the President Eisenhower's approval, an assassination uh, plot to kill Patrice Lumumba. He's overthrown in a military coup. They can't get to him in his home because it's surrounded by UN troops. He breaks out. It's a very dramatic story that I tell in this in, in, in the book, he and his wife and his infant son flee. They know if they can get to a certain province that's his stronghold, he'll be safe. People stop him along the way. He's such a popular leader. They want him to talk and give speeches. He finally comes to a river, where, and if he can cross that river, he's safe. And he does get in a little canoe with his aide, one of his top aides, and they cross the river. But his wife and, and, and son are left on the other side. Just at that mo moment, Mobutu, who's the dictator who's overthrown him, his troops show up and grab his wife and son. And his aides on the other side of the bank who are with him beg him not to return mm. get back in the canoe because they say, you are the life of the nation. If you cross the river, you will kill our nation. You can't do this. But his wife is crying. She's being beaten. The son is crying. And he goes, life is filled with tragedy. And he gets back in the canoe, he's grabbed, and he falls into the hands of his captors again. Well, John Kennedy was known as an advocate of African nationalism. And now John Kennedy's been elected, just as uh, Lumumba falls into captivity. And there's great world pressure to have him released. And the CIA knows that as soon as Kennedy's inaugurated and in the White House, that he'll be in a position to save Lumumba. What do they do? They rush his execution, his extraordinary rendition, one of the first cases of extraordinary rendition. They make sure that he's transported to a province uh, that's in the control of a uh, diehard enemy of, of, of Lumumba. He's brutally beaten to death by people who are on the CIA payroll. His body is driven around, in fact, by people in the CIA trying to find what, what to do with it, to dispose of it. And then to make this even worse, the CIA doesn't inform the president that Lumumba's dead, the new president, President Kennedy. They wait for a month after he's been inaugurated, and they still don't tell him. He gets the, the notice that Lumumba's been killed from UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson. And there's a famous photo of JFK, his face crumpling in agony on the phone as he hears about Lumumba's fate. The CIA completely defied Kennedy from the very beginning, and this is one of the most extraordinary examples of that. Yes, um, I sometimes say as a thriller writer that uh, the government does so much that's bad for America but great for thriller writers, and this <laughs> book is just, I mean, it's just a case study. It's, uh, it's like another theme in the book is um, how powerless elected leaders sometimes seem to be um, in the face of the sort of imperfect knowledge they have and what's being kept back from them by the permanent, by the secret government, the deep state, the permanent state. And yeah, this would be um, uh, a perfect example of that. I, I've got one more question about mm -hmm. the Bay of Pigs. I, I couldn't help but think about, as I was reading the section on, uh, on the Bay of Pigs, about Obama's recent uh, announcement that he's going to extend the war that he ended in Afghanistan 
uh, past 2016. And I don't know. I mean, I don't have the information, but how do you think there are parallels between um, the way the CIA and the military manipulated Kennedy um, and, uh, and the sorts of decisions Obama is making on questions of war and peace, intelligence, transparency, uh, surveillance, topics like those? Well, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for Obama's intelligence, um, and I think uh, in many ways he's uh, done some good things for the nation. There was, of course, you know, huge hopes for him as a president. But I have to say, I don't, I don't think he, I think he lacks the character and the, the courage of John Kennedy. I don't think he's been able to or willing to consistently stand up to the national security people who are pushing him in uh, the direction of permanent war. He came in saying he wanted to shut down Guantanamo. It's still open. I know he's been releasing prisoners. Uh, he expanded uh, enormously the drone assassination program. I mean, the drone assassination program, I think, qualifies as a war crime. It, these are assassinations done in our name with the thinnest fig leaf of legal review. Uh, we don't know how these uh, decisions are made to kill certain people around the globe in our name. Uh, it's done routinely. There was a huge public outcry in the 1970s when the church committee re revealed that a few foreign leaders had been targeted for assassination. And yet we as an American people are rel relatively uh, quiet and passive uh, about the drone assassination program. At some point, I think we're going to have to answer to, for this as a nation, and certainly our leaders should at some point. So, you know, I think, unfortunately, Obama has been a weak president, all in all, when it comes to standing up to the national security. He didn't want to be at war permanently, and yet that is going to be his legacy as he leaves in eight years. Uh, just as you think he's withdrawing troops, he, there's another reason for him to expand. You know, C. Wright Mills, the, the famous sociologist, who is one of the heroes in my book, by the way, because I think he was the most acute uh, intellectual uh, analyst of the Cold War mentality, when he was a professor at Columbia in the 1950s writing The Power Elite, he had this great quote talking about this sort of Cold War mentality that's also sort of the war on terror mentality. And he's talking about people like Alan Dulles, and he says, you know, such people as these are crackpot realists. In the name of reality, they create a paranoid fantasy all of their own. And of course, then we're all forced to live in that paranoid fantasy of permanent war, where we create more enemies than we kill. Yeah. And it's like this eternal loop that keeps going and going and going. So at some point, you know, as a democracy, we have to like confront this and say enough. The presidential campaign, I think, is off to a dismal start when it comes to that. Bernie Sanders has done a wonderful job of raising the wealth gap issue, and I give him great credit for that. But even Bernie Sanders, and certainly none of the Republicans, and not Hillary Clinton, have made this permanent war machine part of the, uh, their campaign. It should be being debated and discussed by the American people. Do we want this? Do we want to live in this world to, to hand this off to our children, that we're, we're permanently war and making permanent enemies all around the world? So this began with the, the Alan Dulles. It began during the Cold War, uh, and it you know, began during World War II. We could talk about you know, yeah, Alan Dulles' collaboration with the Nazis. That's a whole other story yeah. I go into. Yeah, as I said, it's, uh, um, we've, well, we've still got time. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sort of monopolizing David, but, but we've still got 41 minutes left for, um, <laughs> so we can open it up. Um, what kind of person 
was, um, was Alan Dulles, psychologically speaking. You tell a story in the book where his, when he's small, um, his sister almost drowns and he just kind of passively watches and he bragged. I mean, what's it? It was in the tone of bragging that I'm one of the few people in Washington who's comfortable sending other men to their deaths. That sort of is a little bit of a strange thing to brag about. <clears throat> um, there's a guy named uh, John uh, Ronson, who some of you might have heard of here. And um, he wrote a book on, about whether leaders are all sociopaths. And you know, reading about <laughs> Dulles is, makes you sort of wonder. What do He's you think? on the spectrum, for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Karen Croft, my colleague who worked with me on the book, who I think studies uh, psychiatry, uh, psychology rather at Stanford was onto this more quickly than I was. She calls him a psychopath, and I came around, I think, to that uh, position. He's somewhere certainly on the spectrum. Um, we could talk about lots of examples, but I'll give you a couple. One is that he, uh, <laughs> at one point, his mistress during World War II, this very interesting woman, Mary Bancroft, uh, who was doing spy work for him for fun. Uh, she was a housewife in Switzerland. She's a kind of a curious character. But she's talking about how charming he was on the surface. And she's saying, you know, you, um, you, you always seem to be very nice to the people, even the people you suspect of doing you harm. And why is, how, how, do, you, how do you do that? And Alan, a little, this is pillow talk, I guess. He says to her, well, you know, I like to see the little mice. I like to see the little mice go into my traps, and I like to see their little necks snapped and the expressions on their face when their necks are snapped. Um, and she's, of course, is a little taken back by this, and she goes, you can't mean that. He goes, well, of course I mean that. It's either them or me, um, even though they're little Speaking mice. Of paranoid fantasies. And all. Yeah. <laughs> so this was a revealing moment, I think. Um, another revealing moment in, in his life is when he puts his own son, Alan Jr., in the hands of an uh, MKUltra uh, scientist. Uh, MKUltra, of course, was the uh, vast Manhattan project of the mind, it was called at the time, CIA-funded program. Many, many scientists, doctors, elite institutions around the country were recruited for this program. And basically, it was a mind control program to see uh, to what extent the CIA could use various drug drugs and various techniques to control the human mind, uh, even to the point of creating so-called Manchurian candidates, and, you know, robotic assassins who wouldn't even know what they were doing. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. Well, his son, who was a brilliant young man, uh, had distinguished himself at Oxford uh, but I think was trying to prove himself to his father, who ignored him all his life. His children said that he treated them as if they were guests in his own home. Um, and so this young man, who's desperate, I think, for some fatherly attention, joins the Marines during the Korean War. And John Foster Dulles, his uncle, you know, tries to get him a soft job stateside, but he refuses. He wants to see action. And he does. And he's almost, he's heroic 
in battle almost to a fault. I mean, he's reckless. And at one point, he's wounded. He gets a fragment, a uh, shell fragment in his brain. And he comes home. He's, uh, and the, it was a great tragedy, obviously, for the family. Um, and he didn't respond to treatments. Um, he was, but he was manage, managing to live his life. But Dulles uh, put him in one situation after the next that he found very stressful, including, as I say, in the hands of an MKUltra scientist, uh, a neurologist in New York City funded by the CIA who was doing experimental treatments on people. And in this particular treatment involved insulin overdose therapy. I don't know if there's any doctors or scientists here, but it has very brutal results. It results in convulsions. Joan, his sister, went to visit him while he was in the hospital being subjected to these treatments. He begged her to get out. He said, they're killing me. Um, so, you know, again, there's no sense that Alan Dulles ever felt uh, others' plight, yeah. other people's feelings. During the war, when he was in uh, Switzerland, um, he was in a hate, his own kind of paradise because he was completely cut off from all authority, other oversight, while he was in Switzerland as this neutral country that was surrounded by the Nazis. People back in Washington didn't really know what he was doing. And um, there were a number of brave people, like Schindler-type Germans, uh, one industrialist named Hans Schulte, who were at the great risk to their own lives coming across the border into Switzerland to tell Dulles, give him the early warning that the Holocaust was starting to take shape, the final solution, and that camps were being built and Jews were starting to be rounded up and transported. And he's not interested in that at all. He's not interested in the plight of Jews at all. What he keeps asking these people from Germany is, how strong is the, are the communists? the underground communists. Um, you know, what's the sort of mood of the German people? What he's most interested in is having Germany emerge as a strong force after World War II that can, can be used as a bulwark against the Soviet Union. He has no human empathy at all for the plight of the Jews. So, yeah, psychopath, I would, I would probably, <laughs> yeah. I'd probably go along with that. Your tax dollars at work. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, there's, a, there's a, a theme that's emerging as I go through these questions, and it was something I was going to ask myself. Um, in general, I guess I would put it this way, what can we do? Right? A lot of you ask this in different, different ways of asking it. Uh, this has been going on for 50 years, arguably at least it's been getting worse. Yeah. What are the mechanics? What can we as citizens do? Well, first of all, we've got to stop what they're doing overseas. We've got to start protesting this because, you know, it's naive of us to think that you can create a killing machine, a drone assassination program, a, uh, an espionage system that, that spies on our allies, that, that subverts foreign governments, and not to have any blowback in our own country. It was naive of us to think the CIA would create a killing team to kill Lumumba, to kill Castro, and for that team not to come home at some point and kill an American leader. That's like saying you can keep the beast out in the backyard, this wild beast, and think you're not going to be, uh, that you will be safe. We've created a beast, and we allowed that beast to roam wildly throughout the world, and of course it has, it has consequences for us at home. So number one, I would say we've got to leash that beast, and it's doing untold damage to this country's reputation and to our souls overseas, 
and that's inevitably eroding and, and, and damaging our own democracy. Ed Snowden gave up his life, basically, his career. This young guy, what was he, 26 when he did what he did? Yeah. 20, 29, yeah. I think he's 29 now. But he, uh, this young, really patriotic guy. I mean, when you listen to him interviewed, I mean, he didn't make any money off it. He wasn't in you know, league with foreign governments. He did it because he was a true, he was old-fashioned guy. He was a true American patriot. And so if he can make that kind of sacrifice, I think it imposes an obligation on all of us to do something. Why, aren't this, why isn't this being debated during the presidential year? We have to demand these candidates, when, if you are for Hillary or Bernie or whoever you're for, address the question of this national security state that's out of control. We really could use a second party, couldn't we? <laughs> uh, it would seem that way, yeah. yeah. Um, it's funny, I, I actually, I, I blog, and <clears throat> one of the things I blogged about when, uh, when Snowden uh, first, when The Guardian was first publishing Snowden's revelations is that, just so you know, in case, don't let anyone bamboozle you that there's some sort of oath of secrecy in the CIA. Well, that really irritates me. <clears throat> there's an NDA. It's an NDA, it's a non-disclosure agreement. The only oath anyone in the CIA takes is an oath to protect and defend the Constitution. So anyway, it's just something to keep in mind when someone talks about this sacred oath of secrecy. It's bullshit. And, and, when, and when people, when also when people charge you with conspiracy thinking when you're talking about how power works, mm. tell them this, there's power engages in conspiracy theories too. Gulf of Tonkin that got us into the Vietnam War was a conspiracy theory. WMDs that got us into the disastrous war in Iraq was a power conspiracy theory. The idea that Fidel Castro, which is what the CIA is peddling yet again with some uh, selectively released documents re recently, that Fidel Castro is behind the murder of President Kennedy, that again is not only disinformation, it's a conspiracy theory. So conspiracy theories are anything that you find too disturbing. To, to look into. What, what you look at is the evidence. What is the evidence? And if you read my book and see the evidence and believe it, then, you know, then it's not a conspiracy theory. It happens to be the truth. Right, yeah, conspiracy theory is just a way of, <clears throat> of trying to deposition any sort of uh, historical explanation that you find unfavorable. Because people immediately get images of tinfoil hats and like, it's conspiracy theory. It's not worth listening to. In fact, what does everybody say whether they're a conspiracy theorist or not? Well, I'm no conspiracy theorist. Exactly. <laughs> like, everybody starts out, we just know we have to, otherwise we'll get depositioned. Um, so here's a, here's a question that, um, uh, another, I think, really interesting question. So the reviews that I've seen for the book have been outstanding. Kirkus uh, gave you a star review. Um, I think it was Library Journal has some really great things to say. Uh, New York Magazine and the uh, the customer reviews on Amazon have been, by and large, just like really fantastic. And, and not just in, in the praise, but in the way they get the book, too. Right. Um, Dan no, Rather just gave me a shout-out. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. Um, but, uh, well, so here's the question. Um, I believe you stated that the, New York, that the New York Times would not review the book, that forces slash pressures prevent uh, this, this venerable institution from reviewing your new book. And yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about the way the establishment media in general has been reacting to the book. Well, I think the jury's still out in the New York Times. I haven't heard anything definitively. They, they often take a while to review a book and they're, you know, magisterial. Uh... <laughs> they've, they've been taking 11 years to review one of mine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Don't give up. <laughs> they're pondering it right now somewhere. <laughs> Michiko Kakutani is like... Hmm. 
No, so I don't know about the New York Times. I've been told, and I don't know if this is uh, true or not, but I've been told uh, via my publicist that the Washington Post is steering clear of it. You know, look, the New York Times and the Washington Post come in for a lot of harsh treatment in my book. I don't know if that's one reason. Uh, Alan Dulles was a master at manipulating the media. He knew all these people. He could get them on the phone. The Salzburgers at the New York Times, Kay Graham at the Washington Post. Uh, he was best friends with Henry Luce, who ran the Time Life Empire. Uh, and when he didn't like the coverage of Guatemala, he could get the reporter pulled out. He wined and dined these guys. Uh, they were best buddies. Um, uh, there was one, you know, appalling letter I found, this groveling, you know, letter from uh, editor at Newsweek after the Warren Report came out. And, of course, Dulles conveniently ran that investigation as a key member of the Warren Commission. And this editor from Newsweek says, Dear Alan, thank you so much for helping direct our coverage of the Warren Report. We couldn't have done it without you. It's like, oh my God, you know, that's not how journalism is supposed to work. But unfortunately, all too often it does work. Yeah. Why did I get off on that? Oh, so the reviews, yeah. So, um, you know, writing is fighting. If, if I don't get blowback from some of these people in the establishment media, I don't think I've done my job, frankly. So when some reviews, you know, scream conspiracy theory and, and blah, et cetera, et cetera, I think I've hit a nerve, and I want to hit a nerve with this book. Yeah. It's, uh, if, there was, if there was one thing, uh, it's not really a disagreement. It's more like a refinement when, when you talk about how Alan Dulles was a master manipulator of the media. I don't know. I almost felt like that's, a, that's like a guy who gets uh, credit for being a great seducer, but he only sleeps with prostitutes. <laughs> like, you mean they're easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're pretty easy, I mean, you're right. If you, if you look at how readily, for example, the New York Times adopted uh, the Bush administration's torture nomenclature, yeah. um, and there are studies on this. I think, it was, um, uh, I think it was a Harvard study that examined usage in the New York Times, the Washington Post, USA Today, and the Wall Street Journal uh, of the word torture, particularly with regard to waterboarding, Pre-2004, when the Bush administration uh, gave its prescribed nomenclature, enhanced interrogation, and before that, and before that, waterboarding was always torture. And then after that, suddenly, these things, uh, waterboarding and other things in, uh, in these news outlets, were enhanced interrogation. And Bill Keller even went on the record once as saying, well, why don't we call it torture? We don't want, we don't want to use the politically correct term. And I'm like, politically correct term? That's plain English, man. Enhanced interrogation <laughs> is you know, what you've been told now is, Politically correct. So anyway, I was just in No, you're right. Language kind of is essential. And oh you, when God. you see how media uses certain language that is official language, that's a dead giveaway that they bought into that uh, perspective. You're right, the perspective yeah. of power. Yeah, which, by the way, is a reason I'm, I'm, it's really refreshing to hear, not surprising, but still refreshing to hear you talk about drone assassination programs because one of, the, one of those phrases that makes me want to pull my hair out is, um, is targeted killing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a way of making it drier. You know, there's a word for that. It's, it's like a Chris... Uh, Chris Hayes said, what, we're going to start calling rape like non-consensual sexual relations. It just like leeches the, or, or, the emotional impact. Or the out. trivialization of death that goes on, even in the New York yes. Times, our newspaper yes. record. I don't know if any of you did. You happen to see the Sunday New York Times where Claire Danes, the star of Homeland, has a chat with over a meal in New York with Jay Johnson, who is now currently head of Homeland Security, but at the time was the legal uh, expert who gave legal uh, cover for the assassination program, the drone assassination program, including the targeting of Olaki, the uh, American citizen who was assassinated with the drone. And it's this kind of like chit-chatty discussion that shows, I think, the spiritual depravity of our media culture. 
I mean, they're talking about targeting human beings, uh, killing human beings. And at one point, this inane reviewer says, well, it must be as hard to, uh, to produce a good TV show, huh? What? <laughs> what kind of moral leap, you know, is that? From going from, the, you know, sort of the agonizing decision to kill human being to, boy, we've got to get uh, this TV show out on time this week. Anyway, I just, you know, I, our, our media has lost all its moral gravity, its sort of moral perspective, I think. And, and the New York Times is just as guilty. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. Um, why are the youth of America so apathetic? <laughs> I have some ideas about that. You know, the youth in San Francisco, I know, aren't so apathetic. Uh, my, we live in this commune. You know, my wife and I, it's like this, our sons who won't leave home, they're in their 20s and their friends, and they're all doing really cool stuff. My uh, son Joe and his friends are making a movie called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh, it's trying to, you know, it's a dramatic film that's focusing on the kind of displacement and convulsions, social convulsions that are happening in San Francisco. Most of the young people I know actually are, you know, trying desperately to figure out this world that they have to navigate now and doing the right thing. And they're not sure about it. There's not a movement like there was in my time. You know, we all felt in my time that we were part of this great thing that was bigger than ourselves. Yeah. There were people in the streets. We had this moral fervor. Um, we were, you know, we sustained each other. And, you know, I sometimes wonder if the technology, you know, breaks people up into these uh, uh, smaller units too much and we're not uh, meeting and greeting one another like this tonight enough. But, you know, I think young people will figure it out. Um, at some point, there's going to be a tipping point. I mean, you can only have the wealth gap be as wide, you know, uh, increasingly wide as it is now, the national security state being out of control, the, the, the planet burning with climate change. At some point, through sheer survival, there's going to be a tipping point. I believe this. I'm an optimist. I argue with people who are not as, you know, optimistic as I am about this. Occupy was a great, I think, uh, moment in time. It was all too brief. But I think at some point, uh, people in San Francisco, people throughout the country, you see, you know, obviously eruptions of this, even in this weird presidential race. I mean, with the Donald Trump is tapping into this deep feeling that the political system is broken. It's thoroughly corrupt. And on the right, and they have Bernie Sanders doing that on the left. So, but we have to find, you know, the structures, the social structures, the movement, the organizations to sustain that outrage and that energy beyond a one election cycle or beyond an outburst like Occupy. 
you know, organize, organize, organize. I'm part of this group now called Vision SF that's deeply concerned about the affordability crisis in San Francisco and the fact that this wonderful diverse city that I celebrated in Season of the Witch is now in peril um, because of this, you know, sort of runaway greed that's happening and City Hall has been bought and paid for. So, you know, hey, we didn't make this beautiful city, this oasis of liberation by just sitting back and getting stones. We did that too, <laughs> but we also did some other things. So we got to get out there again and organize and kick ass. You know, if I were a conspiracy theorist, which of course I'm not, <laughs> I would argue that the uh, purpose and certainly the effect of the government's ending of the draft was to diffuse protest. Mm. Yeah. by eliminating uh, a large measure of the cost of war from the very young people who would otherwise be in the streets protesting against Middle it. Middle class. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone here reads Andrew Bacevich, who yeah. I think is here, here. fantastic. Yeah. He's, he's our, he's our smelly Darlington butler. Yeah, you're right. That's right. That's, I, you know, I never, you're right. A, a military officer who has uh, come to criticize the national security state. Yeah, and, I mean, brilliant criticism. If you don't know him, um, um, look him up on the internet. Anyway, he's argued that um, along the lines of, look, if there were someone who just went house to house in America collecting the war surcharge, you know, we've assessed you, we take cash or checks. This month it'll be $100, $1,000, whatever it is. Our imperial ventures would just, <laughs> you know, it would be over. But um, we borrow the money from the Chinese and we've ended the draft. And so people don't have the same personal stake uh, that they felt during, say, the Vietnam War. But, you know, that, that maybe is a conspiracy theory. But Not a conspiracy theory at all. It's a good point. Yeah, I think so. Um, you touched on this, but maybe, maybe you can uh, go into it a little bit more. Someone asked, is America vulnerable for a revolution? Well, that's what I was talking about, the tipping point, again. You know, you know I think uh, it's, those things are so hard to predict. Someone was just telling me about Lenin, not that that's our model, um, but that Lenin, uh, like days before the Bolshevik Revolution broke up, was uh, broke out, uh, told friends, "Well, it's all over. I'm going back to law or whatever he was <laughs> doing beforehand." So even Lenin didn't see the the Russian Revolution coming. I think these things are these sort of these uh, tectonic shifts yeah. underneath the surface that we can't altogether predict. I mean, you can certainly see. Uh, strange things happening on the surface like now, the Trump phenomena, the Bernie Sanders phenomena. Um, but there may be some deeper upheaval uh, building that we don't even know about. Just from anecdotally, everyone I talk to feels some uh, enormous sense of stress in their lives, in their family life, economically, a sense that things aren't working politically, the system doesn't work for people anymore, that we have an oligarchy, not a democracy. Um, and at some point, you know, we're uh, a feisty people at heart, I think. You know, how long can you continue to go along with that state of affairs? So, again, the optimist in me does believe that there's going to be some breakout. Chris Hedges believes that, too. Yeah. How many people know Chris Hedges? I think he's a great uh, writer, a former New York Times reporter, um, and he wrote a book called Wages of Rebellion that you should read. It came out not long ago. And he goes around the country sort of evaluating people's uh, you know, mood uh, and, and all these stress points in American society right now. 
And he does predict that we're getting close to this breaking point, this tipping point. So I hope he's right. And then, of course, if we do have a breaking point, the point is not for it to get worse, because you can also have these uh, social and political cataclysms that actually end up you know, uh, making the country worse off. Um, and so, again, the way to do that is to organize, to have movements, to create leadership that comes out of these movements that are accountable, that are responsive to the needs of people. And, um, you know, to me, it's also just a, uh, a gift in itself to be involved in a popular movement like that. You don't feel alone. You f to me, that's always been my church. When I'm marching in the streets back when I was younger, even now, when I'm organizing with people, when I'm speaking like this, I feel this sense of human uh, solidarity that makes me feel less alone in the world and gives me hope for the future. And as a father, I need to have hope for the future, and I'm sure all of you do too. What did Snowden say? Courage is contagious. Yes. Yeah. And it clearly is, right? I mean, we have a new whistleblower. I don't know if you, anyone here reads The Intercept. Yes. Yeah. Talk about that. Oh, well, I was thought you were going to, the guy who hacked um, the, the CIA director. Are you kind of a him? <laughs> yeah. you want to talk about Did you all hear about No, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand why John Brennan is upset about that. If he has nothing to hide, he has nothing to fear. <laughs> exactly. Very strange. Very strange. I don't want to take credit for that. That was a Jeremy Scahill tweet today, and it was right on the money, though. Anyway, I don't know if there you read you. a bunch of, apparently a bunch of kids hacked uh, John Brennan's AOL account. So, so. Who has an AOL account there? <laughs> the director of the CIA? That's what does he still use a fax? <laughs> uh, so let's see, we've got two minutes left, and I think we've, we've reached the point in our program where there is time for only one last question. There are so many good ones. I apologize if your question was one of these great ones that we just didn't have time for. Um, uh, there's nothing you can do. We got, you know what? Maybe we should, maybe we should wrap it up with one, with one minute. Is, can I ask one more? What? Okay. Um, so someone, someone wrote, it can't just be the Dulles brothers. It can't all come down to the Dulles brothers. <laughs> what are the more, the wider factors, human institutional factors? In one minute or less, David. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I don't mean to single out the Dulles brothers. They were part of a system of power, and that's why I did uh, evoke C. Wright Mills, who understood this as a system of power. Uh, we, I could go down a long list of names. The Rockefeller brothers, who are also very close to the Dulleses, but they work together in organizations like the Council on Foreign Relations, where they kind of hash out their policies. Do we drop bombs on Japan or not? Do we overthrow this government in Guatemala or not? So this is kind of a consensus of the power that's developed in these situations. It's not just one or two masterminds. But the Dulles brothers, I have to say, were kind of the executors of this world. They floated back and forth between Wall Street and Washington. They were groomed for this kind of uh, board chairmanship role. But they only acted with the consensus of those men, and they were usually men, who were in their power circle, and they certainly weren't lone rangers or, uh, you know, supermen. Okay. Um, well, let me just say again, we, in an hour and 65 minutes, we really only skimmed the surface. This is such a terrific book. It reads like a thriller. And trust me, I know. Um, I highly recommend it. Also recommend Season of the Witch. Um, what a great history of San Francisco. So our thanks to Salon.com founder David Talbot for coming in to discuss his new book, The Devil's Chessboard, Alan Dulles, The CIA, and the rise of America's secret government. We also want to thank our audiences here and on radio, television, and the internet. 
I'm Barry Eisler, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. I forgot to do this at the beginning. That's so cool. I love that. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Thank you, Barry. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can catch The Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network.